I don't know about you, but I love principles. Not like high school principles, although I, I, I love them. I mean principles like things that are always true, things that give us the greatest chance of succeeding in whatever we're uh, striving for. And it's is good because I live in a country that likes principles. Because we will regularly gather around people who have figured out something well and we'll gather together to hear what they did and how they did it so that I can kind of take those same principles and, and go home and apply them in, in my life. Do you do this? Right? We, we all do this. Our bookstores are full of people who are successful at something, who figured something out, and they were kind enough for $10 to share with us a couple of things they did. And the belief, the reason why we buy these is not just because we're curious about someone else's experience, but because we really believe that if I find the principle, that thing out of their specific context that is always true, usually true, then if I apply it in my world, I can be successful in the things that I care about and the things that matter. We do this in every single industry. Teachers from the school district will gather on a regular basis to hear new principles that's been kind of researched and, and dug up from a place that's finding unique success. And they'll, they'll try to find out what's unique about this and they'll take it and they'll apply it here and it works and, and, and scores go up. And, and we do this in, in, in just about every profession. Even youth pastors will gather together in this region and we'll bring We'll hear from someone who's doing it well, and we'll bring stuff that's working in our context, and we'll share it. Because the belief is that how you're doing it, how you're finding success, I, I could maybe take home and do it in my setting and, and find success. And this is good. This is true. Reality is governed by principles, right? Right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is why we tell our kids, buckle up, because... Kid, folks who get in car accidents that are wearing seatbelts are just like way more likely to survive than those not. And so we tell them that. We teach our kids financial principles. Don't spend more than you make. That will so, that'll just save you from a whole batch of problems. But that's a principle that we'd say, if you want to be financially successful, you got to do this. Don't violate it. Save 10%, tithe 10%, and and spend the rest. We have conflict management principles where when we get together with folks who aren't seeing eye to eye, there's a couple things you can do to help increase the odds of, of reconciliation. If you look at most of our personal life failures or even some of our organizational failures, you can usually trace them back to someone or somewhere when a principle was violated, where you can say, you shouldn't have done that here, you should have done this here. The book says this, and you didn't do that. So I love principles. We even have biblical principles. That's why we come week after week. We dedicate half of our, of our gathering, of our worship, to hearing biblical principles be taught. Why? So we can just pass the Bible test when we get into heaven right? There's going to be a test. And the correct answer is B. No, we, we, take, we take stories from 
centuries ago, halfway around the world, and we believe that we can unpack out of the stories and find a universal principle that is applicable in our life today that will help us better live in alignment with reality as God has made it. Are we still on the same page? This is good. I teach principles to 12-year-olds. I'm a middle school pastor. I teach them at camps. I teach them at retreats. I teach them on Wednesdays. I teach them on weekends because I believe that they need to know principles. And I can just point to high schoolers and college students and young adults who've wandered off of the principles that we've talked about and taught and, and, are, and are paying for it. And so I'd say anyone can learn these. I've been in school most of my life. I've done a lot of school. And it's not because I'm really smart. It's because I'm willing to pay people lots of money to teach me principles in areas where I currently don't know them. I have the debt to prove it, okay? <laughs> because I believe in this. I believe that my leadership in our middle school ministry matters. And I believe that there are principles of middle school ministry, things that when implemented well, help increase the odds of students walking in off the street with no background at all, finding a comfortable environment where they can be themselves, ask questions, process life, get to know a leader they'd like to be like when they grow up, be known by name, be prayed for on a weekly basis, be taught from the scriptures in a way they can actually understand. I have a lot of influence over that process, and I want to do it as well as I can, because if 10 people experience that, or 100 people experience that, that's a big difference, and I want as many as possible to experience and find faith in these years that will last for a lifetime. And so I study and I do my homework because lives are at stake. And if we were in, went into the doctor, we'd hope that they'd done their homework, right? And they weren't guessing, that they were using best practices. But do we ever talk about the shortcomings of principles? Even in particular, the shortcomings of biblical principles? Because there are some. And I confess that I didn't, I, I, I didn't know this growing up. And so while I did go to Sunday school and I paid attention and learned a lot of lessons, I didn't learn the shortcomings of biblical principles. I was taught to follow Jesus and that he embodied and lived the principles better than anyone. And that if I learned them well and I followed his example, that I too could be like Jesus. I could be a disciple of Jesus. And I would say that logic is flawed. Following biblical principles alone will never allow us to fully follow Jesus or to do and experience what he intended us to do and experience. At the core of principles is this question of how. We like what you did, and so we ask, how did you do it? We do this with everyone, as I've said. But when Jesus was asked how, when Jesus was going throughout his doing what he was doing, it's interesting to note that we don't often copy how he did it. We like what he did, but how he did it doesn't always get reproduced. Let me give you an example. 
How many of you have ever hired someone? You've been an employer where you needed to fill a spot. And, uh, and what's the process you probably went to fill that role? You probably had an application. You probably looked at resumes. Saw if there was any relevant work experience that would indicate at all that they'd be successful in this. You probably called references. You had a couple interviews to check chemistry. And, and then after a lot of work, you hired it, him, her. And, and, and still only about two-thirds of the time does it work out. Jesus had 12 openings. He had a long applicant list called a lot of references. No. He approached 12 people that you would not have thought were most likely to be picked as a disciple and said to them, follow me. I got a job. I think you're the guy. The entire fate of the mission of God in three short years would be handed off to this group, and he didn't even run background checks. How irresponsible. We run background checks. So how, that's one example of how Jesus did that we do not do. But what Jesus did in that, we do do. We do believe that we should surround ourselves with people that we're pouring our lives into. We do believe we should invest in the next generation. We do believe we should delegate and give away and empower others for ministry. We like that. But how you chose those 12, no one else is doing that thinking that's a good idea. But this happens in a lot of areas of Jesus' life. I want to draw your attention to three times that Jesus healed someone of the exact same illness. So three times, more than three, but three specific instances, uh, blind people come to Jesus. And, and if a good principal person would, would be curious, he's going to heal them. So I'd be asking, how'd you do it? So if it's possible, how'd you do it? What'd you do that allowed them to be healed? And uh, that's how a lot of our conversations begin and, and this is how. This is fascinating. So you, you could take good notes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these quickly. This isn't our main text for the morning, but um, in one example, in John 9, 1, uh, the man comes to him sick, blind, and he, he spits on the ground, makes some mud with the saliva, and puts it on the man's eyes. Tells him to go wash in a pool, and the guys can see now. I've never done that. <laughs> I don't think I ever will. No one would, I mean, really? No one would go, oh, oh, that's why I've never healed anyone. I've never done that. That's how. No, no one would ever think that. You didn't, Jesus didn't do that thinking like that was like the secret, Right? So often when we live principled living, what we're saying is what I'm doing is the biggest factor in whether or not my goal is accomplished. What I'm doing is the biggest determinant of whether or not this is going to happen. That's what principled living says because it says when you do these things, this is the likely result. When you wear your seatbelt, this is the likely result. When you don't spend more than you make, this is the likely result. I want that likely result. I do this and I get that. This is how we live. This is how we lead. This is how we parent. This is how we lead our Bible studies. This is how we follow the scripture. If you do this, this will happen. If you obey, this will happen. If you pray by faith, this will happen. 
Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud. Okay, that's just the first one. The second one, if we did a Mark 8.22, we would find, uh, this one's just hilarious. Mark 8.22. I'll have to read it just so you know I'm not making this up. Uh, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And then his eyes were open, and his sight was restored. At least the first time he spit on the ground. <laughs> he spit directly on the man's eyes. The guy didn't even know it was coming. He couldn't even, <laughs> right? That's just not fair. Does Jesus have like Purell saliva? We know he was very holy and clean. And like before meals, did the disciples stick their hands out and he'd spit and they'd wash? And <laughs> what? What happened to the mud? Here's what happened to the mud. That first eye illness, if you look at the Greek word, it's actually a cornea uh, issue. And this one, it's more of a retina. It's, it's a different eye disease. And so mud, mud would have made no sense in this case, <laughs> if, if you know the Greek. <laughs> We're going to have fun today. I'm not, I'm not making any of this up. Matthew 9, 27 is uh, this is a very respectable one. I think you're going to like this one. Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. He asked them, do you believe I can heal you? They say yes. Verse 29. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Ah. Now that's much more socially acceptable. Let's do that. In fact, you'll notice at the end of our services, we uh, have the opportunity for you to come and receive prayer, and we usually just do the third version. Just touch your arm or touch your back and pray, and nothing weird. Why did Jesus do this? If Jesus is a rational human being, which we, which we assume he is, there has to be a reason for this. The exact same sickness, the exact same result, and fundamentally different hows in how he did it. And no one would think that how he did it actually mattered that much, right? You don't think it's the mud, you don't think it's the spit. Well, Jesus was asked this very question. Because a lot of the what's he did and the how's he did them were, were controversial or weird or sometimes he did it on the wrong day or in the way that they weren't expecting. And so they said, why, why do you do this? Why do you do it the way you do it? And Jesus gave them this answer. I'm in John 5:19, uh, which is page 1054 if you want to see it yourself. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. That's his explanation for why he's doing what he's doing. 
The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. That word sees is not a past tense. When I was in heaven, I got some instructions and I refer back to them. It's a very active present verb. Think real time sees what the father is doing and, and, and behaves in accordance with it. Another time he's asked, and he again gives the same answer, which to me says that the significance of Jesus' life and ministry and the fact that we're still talking about what he did, he's saying, you want to know part of how that happened? And we would say yes, because it's Jesus' very instructions to us that says, you will do even greater things than I did. You will be like me. In fact, it will be better because I am going to the Father and I will advocate for you and the Holy Spirit will be inside of you. And so you can do what I'm doing and more. But we haven't really reproduced people like Jesus to this degree often. And I wonder if this is part of it. Jesus says the second time in John 12, 49, page 1066. He's asked, why are you doing it this way? How are you, why are you doing it the way you do it? And he says, John 12, 49, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. That's specific. Okay, say this. And say it in this way. He says right after, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. I think the reason that Jesus said whatever the Father told him to say is because he didn't have anything else to say. He didn't know anything. And so he just kind of needed some instructions in the case-by-case -case moment, right? No. Jesus probably had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. Word for word. Jesus could quote and did more than any new, other New Testament person from every single prophet. Jesus, at age 12, is sitting in the temple asking the priests questions. Jesus had done his homework. Jesus knew principles. Jesus created the world. He was smart. And yet asked after the game, after the big win, how'd you do it? He says, I do what and how I'm told to. I think this principle <laughs> is best seen in the life of someone who violated it. Jesus is a good example, but sometimes someone following this uh, doesn't fully show us uh, the significance of it and what it looks like in, in, in the opposite. And so I want to turn your attention, and, and I'd like you to go there with me, to Exodus 17. This is on page 71 in the Bibles in the Pew Racks. Exodus 17. So from Jesus' testimony alone, he would say this is a really big deal. And he didn't point it back to principles. We're going to find in this story that it's a big deal. Let me give you a little background context. 
This is Moses leading the Israelites. They, had, they were uh, slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, God uses Moses to come and 10 plagues hit Egypt and finally they say, get out of here. And so they, they leave in the night, two million people strong probably, and then they come to the Red Sea and there's this sea in front of them and then the Egyptians are like, on second thought, we really don't want to lose our volunteer workforce that you guys have so graciously been. So we're going to come back and get you. So the world's largest military is coming in on them and the Red Sea's right here. And here's what happens as what usually happens in a kingdom advancement. Today, then, America, China, most kingdom advancement happens with human and divine collaboration. Most kingdom advancement has a part that only God can do. And most kingdom advancement has a part that's our responsibility. Think about salvation. We believe only God can save someone, can change a heart, can draw a person to himself. But we believe that we have a part to play in it, right? We are called to live lives that demonstrate the gospel. We are called to serve our neighbor, to love others. We are called to pray for those who persecute. We are called to articulate our faith, to give a reason for the hope we have. And most people who do get saved would point to a person that was a key part of that process for them. So in, every, in most kingdom advancements, there's a part that's ours to play and there's a part that's God's to play. And like I said with the middle school ministry, the part that's mine, I want to play it well. I want to do it well. So the, the Israelites are at the Red Sea and, they, and in this instance, God's going to do something and there's a part for them to play and there's a part for him to play. And he tells them, I want you to stand still. This is in Exodus 14. I want you to stand still because that's totally intuitive, rational, wise, and according to the best practices of the day. The army's coming and they're supposed to stand still. I would think maybe we should start swimming or we should run and hide or we should you know, kind of get ready. But no, he says, be still. The only way you will ever see another day, the only activity you can do to help yourself is the hardest one for you to do in this moment. But if you do, you'll see tomorrow. And that day they did. And they were still. And God instructed Moses after they were still to touch the Red Sea with his staff and the waters parted. And that was a good day. And God got two things that he loves out of that scenario. One, he got trust and obedience from his people. Parents, you know that you don't always want your kids to have to understand what you've asked them to do for them to obey what you've asked them to do. And that there's nothing more dear to a parent's heart than to just know that whatever you say they're gonna do because you know better than them and you, and you do understand and you do want what's best for them and so you give them instructions and sometimes they don't obey because it doesn't make sense and that grieves your heart and that's dangerous for them. So God gets trust. Yes. If you didn't trust me, you would never do this and you're doing this. 
you trust me. And the other thing he gets is a greater percentage of the glory. Because no one's writing a book called Standing Still in the Face of Fear. Next time you're in a big battle and you've run out of options, simply freeze. It works very well in this study cited, you know. No, no one thinks that's why you made it, but that's the part you had to play. So God gets a greater percentage of the glory of, 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 of the how because you go, wow, even with us standing still, he can do it. He's cooler than I thought. He's bigger than I thought. No, he's not. He's, actually, he's, he's not any bigger than he was before, but you have a more accurate picture of how big he is, and that's good for you, and that's good for him. And he doesn't always get that without scenarios like this. So we pick up the story in Exodus 17. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're wandering in the desert. They run out of water. They're going to die. Moses cries out, says, what do I do? And in verse 5, God instructs Moses. There's always his part and God's part. His part. Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders. And that day, water gushed forth out of a rock. And he wrote a book. Finding the right place to strike the rock in times of dry desert. No, you just go, wow. God provided. Moses was obedient. Moses has been doing this his whole life. Fast forward. Jump with me to Numbers 20. Numbers 20. You're going to think this is deja vu. But they were in the desert a while. And after a couple months, they're on the other side of what is now the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, they run out of water again. They run out of water again. So let's see what happens in this story. <clears throat> Moses and Aaron in verse 6 of, verse, of chapter 20 fall on the face in front of God, on their face in front of God, and say, what do we do? And God says, take the staff. Okay, that sounds familiar. And you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. Verse 9. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his staff, his arm, and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. And Moses' approval rating shot through the roof. The people were happy, healthy, full. And the very next verse says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Don't you think that's kind of an overreaction? Did you hear what happened in the story? What was he told to do? Speak to the rock. Right. 
with two and a half million people watching. Just talk to it. Just kind of woo it. Just persuade it. Speak to the rock. Here's why this was a significant test for Moses, and here's why God reacts as strongly as he does. Because get this, the life-defining leadership role for Moses, leading the Israelites out of Egypt into the Promised Land, his life-defining leadership role will not come to completion because of this. This is that big of a deal. Moses has an opportunity right here to show where his trust lies. Does his trust lie in the past, in how God worked last time, in a principle of what would make sense in this scenario, or does he trust God? Because they are very separate in this moment. If you don't trust God's power to bring water out of that rock through your voice alone, you won't use your voice alone. You'll use something you think is more reliable. Something you've seen work before. You've never seen this work before. And with the stress and with the chaos in that moment, he shows where his allegiance lay. And he strikes it. And God says, no. You are not fit to lead my people into that land. Moses, if anyone had a reason, enough of a reason to believe me in something as silly as that, it's you. No one has been closer or seen more consistently my divine intervention in response to often even irrelevant human activity than you. Everyone else just heard about the burning bush. I appeared to you in a bush that was on fire that did not consume. I spoke to you. Everyone else saw the plagues happen. I delivered them through your hand. Everyone else stood at the Red Sea and watched it part. I used your staff to do it. No one's had a closer seat. And when it comes time to this small thing, I give you the chance to demonstrate trust, to give me a greater percentage of the glory. But some people right now are thinking your stick is awesome. And they wouldn't be thinking that if you had have simply spoken to the rock. You don't trust me. You trust what makes sense. And because of that, you're not fit to lead my people. That's a big deal. What I'm struck most about, one part of this I'm struck most about is, is that this is not Moses in his 20s, in his 40s, in his 60s. This is Moses in the twilight of his life after a full lifetime of following God. Isn't it humbling to know how vulnerable we are at any point in our life to just following the principles as opposed to obeying? Principles are great, but there's something better. I want to show you a picture that I think helps illustrate this. It does, it does for me. If you uh, watch NFL football, you, know, you might notice that there's a green dot on the back of quarterbacks' helmets. It's just like an Office Depot sticker, nothing fancy, but it distinguishes their helmet as different from every other helmet on the field. And what makes it different is that it has a radio in it. So think about this. 
The quarterback is theoretically the most skilled position on the field, meaning it takes the most physical practice and preparation and precision to be good at this position than any other one. It's why it's usually the highest paid player on the team. So he has to physically prepare and do things that are really hard to do. And so he practices and practices and practices and gets strong so that in the midst of pressure and, and, and a rushing defense that he can hit a two-inch square spot 40 yards away again and again and again and again. So the quarterback is very competent. He's also intelligent because it's not enough to simply be able to throw or do whatever you want to do. You need to know your team's playbook. And so each team has their own unique set of a couple hundred plays that you are the first part of on every single one. So on different plays, you will take the ball and you will step back five steps. On other plays, you will step back seven steps. On certain plays, you will turn to your left and you'll fake. On certain turns, you'll, play, you'll, you'll turn to your right and you'll hand it off. You have four different receivers all running different routes and you need to know each one's different route because if your first primary receiver is covered, then you need to know where you're looking next. And even if that person's not looking at you, you need to know that in a half a second they will and that you can throw it to there and they'll be there. So they study and study and study late into the night the playbook because they're the key person in, in pulling all of these off. So they're competent, they're intelligent, and they'd say that's not enough. So why do they have this radio? What's, what's on the radio? It's actually country music. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it lowers your blood pressure in stressful situations. Uh, no, it's not country music. It's the coach's voice. It's the coach's voice. So that in between plays, the, the most talented and smartest player on the team is listening to the coach's voice. You'll often see players put their hands over their ear holes so that they can block out all the noise and distractions and just hear what the coach is saying. They trust his experience. They trust his perspective. There's often a coach in the booth that has a bird's eye picture of things that they don't see, and so they trust that perspective and they listen, even if they've decided what the first 25 plays of the game will be in advance, he will still look over in between plays and see, do you want to change it or do you want to do what we'd said? And if he won and he was great and he was the MVP of the game and the, and the reporters were asking him how he did it, you will often hear them say, I just executed the game plan that the coach laid out. I just listened well and did what I was told. Isn't that a profound picture? I see Jesus with his helmet on and his, his hands covering his ears in, in, in the midst of crowds in chaos, able to listen to specific instructions, sometimes things that make sense, Sometimes things that don't make sense, but that demonstrate trust and give God glory. The point I think we take away from this is obedience to specific instructions is always more favorable and ultimately more fruitful than adherence to general principles. 
Obedience is better than adherence. Do we live like this? Do we teach our kids this? Do we prepare them for the moments in life when all those good things we told them to never not do, that there will be moments when God will ask for trust and obedience and he has plans to do something huge if they will simply obey? Do we prepare them to say on that day when that comes and it doesn't make any sense, you're called to speak to a rock and there's a lot on the line, I hope you ditch anything else that would get in the way and obey. I don't. I hate this kind of stuff. This is what was so difficult about our adoption was because I knew biblical principles and they were keeping me from going where God wanted us to go. Did you know the biblical principle about um, not beginning to build before you've counted the cost and made sure you had enough? That's in the New Testament. So you don't get halfway through and everyone's like, ha-ha. I was in Sunday school that day. I logged it away. So when we felt led into adoption, I counted the cost and realized we were going to get halfway and run out. And so clearly, I'm being wise and following biblical principles. And we, this train ends here. And we felt God continue to lead us past this. And I, I just, everything in me resisted. So we finally begin to, to entertain this idea. And then we feel God lead us to to do something speak to the rock equivalent that made no sense in light of what we needed. It was so difficult. I want you to think about Broadway. Imagine when it wasn't there and we were just beginning conversations about raising money for it and there were a lot of conversations that happened and there were a couple meetings with key potential donors who were well-resourced when... Essentially, they said, no, 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 red-faced, frustrated. This isn't how you do it. We didn't have a full, clear picture of what that building was going to look like. And so there was this, no, this, you're not following the principles with a project this size. You need to do this, this, this. You need to have this, this, and this. And there was this sense from leadership that, you know what? We feel led to build, and we have a couple ideas about what that looks like. And so we're moving forward, but we're not totally sure. And for some people, that wasn't enough to get on board. And here today, you see that thing full every day of the week, morning, noon, and night. Five people coming to Christ through the free medical clinic that we did not have that fully articulated at the beginning of this. Built in a recession. That was trust and obedience. And God has gotten a lot of glory from how that happened, not only that it did happen. And boy, does it make a lot of sense. Do we have these conversations in our families? Are we prepared in our marriages, in our companies, for the moments when we will have heard, and it, and it doesn't make any sense? Please hear me. This is not a message against principles. I think principles are good. I will still continue to teach them. I just think there's something better. Obedience. Why do we still need principles? Because we don't always have specific instructions. 
Jesus said, I only do what I hear the Father saying. I don't think he said, I hear the Father saying what I do every single moment of every day. Brush your teeth, pick up your right fork, eat the peas. He said, I only do what I'm told to do, meaning I don't not do what I'm told to do. But I believe there are times when we don't have specific instructions and that we are called to do what makes sense. And we are called to be prepared and to lead well in ways that are rational and wise and proven and according to good research. You even see the New Testament uh, early church in Acts 15. There's this time where they say this phrase, and I love it. We did what seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. If that's not a shot in the dark of, uh, didn't seem like a bad idea. It didn't violate any principles, but we didn't have specific instructions, so we kind of just picked an angle and we went with it. Yeah. You even see Moses, who followed God's voice well for most of his life, facing a leadership challenge at one point in his life, and there's too many people coming to him, and he goes to a pagan priest, Jethro, his father-in-law, and he asks for advice. It's essentially hiring a consultant to come in and see what he sees and to give some advice. And he gives advice, Moses takes it, and it's the right thing. Even kingdom operations can benefit from secular consultants and wisdom and research. It's not saying any of those are bad. It's saying something's better. And so does God want fully prepared, knowledgeable, competent people, or does he want fully dependent sons and daughters? Yes. Yes. I think he wants both. Yes. 